Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh. Hey, it's Dr. Scott. We are back. It is what, mid-month? Yeah, yeah mid-month. It is. It is. I'm still trying to figure out how to write the date on my checks. <laughs> I'm still stuck in like 2013 or we'll something. We'll get you there. Yeah, thank you. Um, gosh, we have a couple things lined up that are going to be really fun. We are going to be attendees at this point at CrimeCon. Yeah. So I know a lot of people that are going to be there on Podcast Row are putting out their, you know, codes for discounts and stuff like that. We're just excited to go yeah. as attendees for the very first time and see what this madness is all about. We're still hoping we might have a place on the speaker's panel, but that's not been determined yet. We'll see. So everybody keep your fingers crossed for us and send us good vibes because that would be very cool. We have we have a really great idea. If we can't utilize it here, we'll, we'll try and do get it, it somewhere. We'll do it somewhere. For sure. Um, but we're also going to make it a Disney trip. Yeah. And we'll have a special Disney episode for you. Oh, right. Month, which we have lots of material for. We've been dying to use it. So <laughs> I guess we'll never get a, a deal from uh, ABC. Damn it. <laughs> but Maybe. it would be good listening. Who it knows? would. It would. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so today's topic you had some thoughts about it when I walked in to see you today about how this topic sat with you. In comparison to all the other ones that we've done. And I don't know why. I mean, it's it's truly bizarre. I We have talked about some really difficult things, and the nature of our job is being exposed to pretty challenging things. And for some reason, this topic, and it's cannibalism, right. you know, we're going to give an overview of cannibalism, has never really bothered me before. In fact, there's some popular culture things we'll talk about that are very interesting. But in watching the documentary that we're basing, you know, today's episode on, mm-hmm. it was really just, there's something about it that really disturbs me. And I'm not really sure what that's about. Yeah, I, I think that's a very common reaction that I'm aware of people having. I don't necessarily have it <laughs> to to tell you a little bit about how I was dealing with it today. I was texting with a couple of people Telling them, oh, I'm doing some final notes and research on cannibalism while I'm eating my chilequiles at this restaurant. Right. And I'm totally fine with it. (laughs) But it's the first one that I kind of thought, do do we need to put like a disclaimer on here or warning or something? Well, that's interesting. You know, I was catching up with the champagne girls this morning. (laughs) I I love catching up (laughs) with the champagne girls. Um, And... They had a, a particularly difficult episode mm-hmm. that they gave a huge trigger warning on, sure. and it was appropriate. It was funny. None of the things that they talked about triggered me, but I could t- totally see where somebody would. So if you're, yeah, you know, we're going to talk about some pretty graphic um, aspects of fantasy and some pretty graphic aspects of certain crimes. And right, it's definitely something that this this episode brings up emotion which I kind of feel like is the point where a lot of these crimes and the way we're looking at people and should they be prosecuted or not, sometimes we base that off of emotion rather than what the letter of the law is. Yeah. And um, it can be in conflict with each other. So I think it's just a huge, interesting piece to cannibalism in the case cases we'll talk about today. So... You guys are probably familiar with Gilberto Valley, also known as the Cannibal Cop. And he was a New York police officer 
for seven years, and when he was still on the job there, 25 years old, his wife basically uncovered some really disturbing online behavior of his that included plots to kidnap and cook and eat women. And so it, it has turned in, it just took on a life of its own. And there is a, an HBO documentary that we're talking about called Thought Crimes um, that sort of kicked off our interest in looking at this from a bunch of different aspects. And I, I he's going to kind of be our jumping off point, but also, we want to talk about cannibalism in and of itself and the ideology of that. Um, and we highly recommend the documentary. I absolutely. think I bought it for a couple of dollars mm-hmm. on YouTube. Yeah. Um, you just log into YouTube and you look for Thought Crimes, mm-hmm. uh, Case of the Cannibal Cop. Right. And it's a couple of dollars. It's really, it's really worth the purchase because... The experts are great. The only one that's pissing me off right now is Alan Dershowitz, whose career is in a complete tailspin. But he has some very succinct legal points to make. But there are uh, there's a psychologist and a, a psychiatrist and another clinician that I think are really very spot on in their right. um, take on this. I also think you know it's interesting and we always kind of talk about the salaciousness of headlines in true crime. Yeah. Oh, and New York no newspapers like no New York newspapers do headlines. I mean well, it's the British ones are well, pretty terrible. I'm talking strictly US. Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's definitely definitely the British tabloids. I mean they will come right. up with some yeah. dark stuff. Just flat out lies yeah. like craziness. Well but... John John Mullaney does that whole routine about like however yeah, he does like the New York Post headlines as every a, a stupid criminal is a bozo. Okay. And <laughs> any kind of sex crime is a perv. Right. And uh, an angel is a child who's died as a result of an accident or a crime, and a tot is every other child. So Lovely. It's just it's these pretty spot three on. or four letter words. Yeah, you that fit they can into grab. one of these categories. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, that was something that was sort of jumping out to me is how quickly we label someone with the most salacious thing, even if it was, you know, we. We associate cannibal with Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Really, it's not like he was eating every single one of his victims. It, it, it was. Wait, what? Yeah, it was. No, no, no. Like, what, like, what do you mean? I mean, tell me more about what your point is. My there. point is that when I hear cannibal and I think Jeffrey Dahmer, I feel like I've been programmed to think he is. Just oh, the purpose of con- it was eating. He feverishly consuming every one of his victims. Okay, when I in reality, he probably ate the bicep of one victim, and the rest were put in his freezer, which is, yes, that's where you keep food. I get it. Right. But he was prever- preserving them for the beauty and because he thought they were so attractive and that whole line of thinking. Right, right. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure where you were going that, here. <laughs> you know, he's surviving off of eating other human beings. Right. And... It, it's just it's it's really interesting how it kind of fits into this like all or nothing thinking of yeah this is there's one little piece and we're just going to label them with that here with the quote unquote cannibal cop he didn't engage in this it was fantasy but here we are with this very salacious story so but that's a, that's an important point of what we're talking about today is no harm, no physical harm came to anyone. Right. 
And the the theme is thought crimes. Yes. When it comes to this particular individual. And and we have some discussion about whether or not would it have happened if he had pursued it? We don't know. Right. But by the letter of the law, uh-huh. he did not commit that particular crime, although he was... Um, he was uh, adjudicated on a couple of charges. Yeah. So he, um, let me get into his background just a little bit, yeah. and we'll talk about the behavior just so folks who aren't super familiar with the story or need a refresher. So um, he grew up in Queens. He actually still lives in Queens to this day. His parents split at a pretty early age. His mom was always kind of the more supportive one. Dad was a disciplinarian, um, but they were both in his life. They He was raised Catholic, and when his father was interviewed, he said, "We I never talked to my son about sex. So yeah, he, said, he went to college. I gave him a box of Trojans. Exactly. And said, be careful. Use them. <laughs> exactly. So obviously we all want to know why and how people have developed different sexual interests. And so we're getting a little bit of information here, you know, some, some information being raised strictly Catholic, not having that open dialogue about sex. Um, and then he ends up getting a bachelor's degree in psychology and criminal justice, just like me, <laughs> uh, from the University of Maryland, and then becomes a police officer with NYPD. And he ends up going on OKCupid and in 2009 and meeting his wife, who is a teacher. And he was still living with his dad at the time. He meets his wife. They get married, and they get pregnant pretty quickly. They were only married, I believe, three years. Um, but they get pregnant a couple years into the marriage, and basically, initially, he's like, I can't do this. So... Probably wasn't envisioning being a dad that quick, um, but he ends up saying, okay, I'm going to be here for this. Oh, I'm sorry. They actually get pregnant before they're married and then says, let's get married. Let's do this. Um, and they get married nine months after their daughter's born, and then their entire marriage is just three years total because she ends up finding out what he is up to online because he's up all night playing video games or watching television or on the internet, which I think a lot of women in this day and age can um, relate to that if there's lacking intimacy, that sometimes their partners are, you know, going to other means to get that. So, And I think he says in the documentary that he... Was he on a shift where uh-huh. they were on different schedules? Yes. Okay. That was yes. so. That was part of him being up late, at least initially. Right. So a, a lot of times with police officers, there's this. You know, I have to come home and wind down before I can go to bed. So they'll either watch TV or do something else to sort of have that transition in between time, because they're still a little bit too sort of jacked up from the day where they can't just go in and go to sleep. So. The shift work probably, you know, is impacting how much he's seeing his wife, but also then not being in bed at the same time and those sort of things. But he ends up staying up way late into the wee morning hours online. And what wife isn't going to be like, who are you talking to online? Or let me check your search history. What's what's keeping you there rather than coming to bed? Um, 
So his wife said he pretty much throughout the marriage seemed pretty miserable, seemed pretty bored with the marriage. With When it came to sex, basically he was unable to finish when they were intimate. Um, and so there was a lot of avoidant behavior going towards video games or TV or being online. And then she went to go check and realized he was erasing his history on the computer, which feels suspicious in and of itself. Um, And then ends up finding a file of images and clicking on that. And that sort of takes her to this website called Dark Fetish Network. She also installed a keylogger. At some point she did install spyware. Then then got access to all the websites and and chat histories and stuff. So after she finds that he's been saving images from Dark Fetish Network, she does actually confront him about it and says, what's going on? This is, uh, you know, there's a dead woman on the you know, front page of this website. Um, they talk a little bit about it in relation to their sex life. Initially, he was obviously, you know, fearful and like, oh, my gosh, what is she going to think? But then they, it actually opened up a dialogue like, okay, what do you, is there something else we can be doing in the bedroom? You know, maybe we need to explore some kinks here and there. And he actually became interested in sex kind <laughs> of for the first time. It reminds me of a Dear Abby column from like the 70s. There was a woman who wrote into Dear Abby that says, my, our sex life is really weird. My husband wants me to lay in a tub of cold water for as long as I can stand. And then for sex, he wants me to close my eyes and not move. Is that normal? <laughs> and Abby's like, get out. Oh, my God. <laughs> get out of that marriage. <laughs> I can't believe they published that. <laughs> um, so despite... You know, this sort of opening up these lines of communication about their sex life, she's still concerned. She then installs this spyware and discovers not only pictures, really brutal and violent pictures and sexualized violence and sexualized murder, um, but also his conversations about killing her um, brutally along with other mutual friends of theirs. And how easy it would be to do. Like, oh, she's asleep in the room in the room next door. Right. Yeah, I could just so, walk right over. Some super creepy stuff that she uncovers. And she takes the baby and picks up and is like, boom, gone out of state with her parents. Um, and kind of deciding what to do at that point. And he's got to realize what she found and they do end up, you know, she texts and talks to him about what happened and why she left. Um, so with that, um, anything you want to add into there before we kind of look at some other stuff? So I wanted to kind of pause here for a moment and talk about sort of these online communities of people that have interests that end up finding each other because you and I have both seen this in populations we've worked with. Absolutely. That we've probably mentioned a gazillion times before. Um, but he he has a statement in the documentary where he says, I realize I'm not the only one out there with these thoughts and in these places on the web, it's accepted. And I don't know how many times I've heard that, but... It's very similar to what we've talked about with incels. Right. It's similar to what we hear with pedophiles. And when you are in this area where you're all finding each other and now in a 
echo chamber. You're in an echo chamber, absolutely. Of just validating each other, and that's growing stronger, and you have your one place that you can go to and feel accepted for these things that you have in your head. I mean, one of the things that I noticed in watching the documentary and reading a lot of material about the the trial and looking at transcripts that are available is that the the difference in, like, let's say if we we're going to compare it to some of the things that are posted in online in the incel community, where we see what they call shit posting and instigating and troll, trolling each other, basically, mm-hmm. to whip each other up into these states of who can say the most horrendous things. To get the more t- most attention. To get the most attention, Sometimes, right. Yeah. This way, this was akin to but different yeah. in that he talks about being validated as a writer because he was so creative in his descriptions. Like, people really responded to his horrific descriptions of what he was planning on doing. Right. And he was very detailed, and even, like, we'll talk about his later literary aspirations, he continues to get validation for that. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, you know, he's in an echo chamber and he's getting validated for being this really creative, you know, yeah, like kind of his niche of being the best one on there and which, getting lots of responses, which is really odd to think about, because if we think about this in terms of a paraphilia, mm-hmm. he's basically creating an, a fantasy narrative that's getting other men off. Yes, that's a really interesting Point. And, and I'm sure, you know, when we talk about cannibalism a little bit more, it's not always sexualized. And for people who have admitted to engaging in cannibalism, they say that wasn't actually a sexual piece of it. Um, there's no part. He, he accepts responsibility for his behavior and that that's what he does. You know, the intention is, of course, is... Disputed. Um, Does he though? Well, I mean, he. I. I mean, I think he gives tacit, or okay. he gives he gives verbal assent. But then some of his behaviors to me are are odd. But we'll get to that later. But there is never any mention of masturbating while watching or fantasizing right. about this or viewing any of it or creating any of this. There's well, there's not that sexual link that he admits to. I don't doubt that he was doing it. Well, but, <laughs> but you're right. He doesn't admit to it. Mm-hmm. However, there at one point during a, a, a you know, one of these fantasy conversations he's having with one of his peers, mm-hmm. the the person says, "I have to stop. This is making me hard." Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, yeah. So he says that or the other guy says that? The person that's he's conversing with gotcha. about their, their, and I'm using air quotes, about their plans. Because sure. that's another thing is he keeps making these plans uh-huh. that never, no one ever acts on. Right. Right. So there's, there's about, I think they mentioned like 24 plans that are made. And in 21 of those, he actually says this is purely fantasy. Well, those are conversations. They're not necessarily plans, but 24 of the conversations. Okay. Oh, oh, I guess you're saying so there was the end result was we're talking about what we're going to. Okay, you're you're right. Okay, you're calling it a plan. So, yes, of those, he's like he was asked directly. Fantasy slash plan. Right. So, and he definitely completely says this is everything I say is not true. It's just a fantasy. It's make-believe. It's totally make-believe. Don't don't believe that I'm being truthful. Correct. And that was sort of the whole um, 
notion of that website that he was utilizing or that forum was right. that's kind of you know on their disclaimer their front page you were going to say however however go ahead <laughs> there were three times in which he said he was asked if he was serious and he said yes so what do we make of that is he escalating is he now changing up the script to be more taboo and bring people in I don't know, right? It's, I mean, it's a, it's sort of the. All, I wish I could think of the exact example of sort of the story of everything I say is a lie, but I'm telling the truth. Oh God! You know, right. like so, you have to kind of think through that. Uh-huh. And I, I mean, I'm maybe making it more complex than it actually is, but from a legal standpoint, it does make it interesting. Like how many times he said, "This is just a fantasy." Yep. This is just a fantasy. Yep. And. This was something that I felt like was really front and center when I was treating child pornography offenders, not only because there's this there's this constant battle of trying to find research that supports whether or not child pornography offenders escalate and then act out, right. um, or are they pedophiles and this is a way for them to sort of feed that Instead of acting out. And, you know, that's and a, discharge it. Right. Like sort of, am I, are they discharging that energy so that it doesn't get acted out in the real world? Right. Right. So there's this constant battle of those two theories, and it, everyone's right. There's some people that one applies to and some people that the other Abs- applies yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, um, But I, I remember one particular case I had. I think the guy was being charged with possession of child pornography. So that was, you know. That was obvious guilt, but he had been engaging in chats where he had these fantasies of where he was writing fantasies about chopping up boys with an axe. And I have never seen federal pretrial officers freak out so much than they did with this guy. Wow. Because it just, they were like, oh my God, he's going to, he's so dangerous. What, who, we've never seen people write about this. And, you know, I know clinical judgment is not great, but I was still like, this guy talks a pretty good talk about how elaborate and wrong his fantasy life was, but he would go into these weird territories where he was starting to talk about this. Yeah, I I find that fascinating because... But it freaked everyone out. Oh, I can imagine. And if, you know, if I was in their position and didn't have, you know, your clinical acumen and skill, I'd probably have the same reaction. Well, sure. You're responsible for them to make sure they don't do anything before they go to prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I I get it. I mean, I also, I kind of want to draw a parallel or a connection to something that everyone experiences, which are intrusive thoughts. You know, we all experience violent, intrusive thoughts to some extent. And you may think that you don't experience them, but you do. And certainly some people who are more use an internal process of dealing with anger probably deal with them more right. than other people. I just had this conversation with the client. Today. Really? But it's <laughs> yes. normal, but it's normal, totally. right? You stand on the edge of the cliff and you think what would happen if I jumped off? You right. stand on the edge of the sa- subway platform and think, "Oh my gosh, I could push that person right in front of the train." Right. And I'm not, you know, I'm sure there are some people listening that are going, "I've never thought of that." I promise me, to some extent you have. You've thought about 
you know, that bank teller who was rude to you and what you would do to them if you could. Or your boss. Like, I want to strangle my boss. It... Even if it's just a fleeting thought, it's not like you're everyone's sitting here ruminating on it. It can be it. a micro thought, totally, an absolute totally. micro thought. Yes. But so you were having the conversation with your client? Yeah, I was having the conversation about, you know, we all kind of walk around with homicidal thoughts every once in a while because we don't have much control over that. They're intrusive, like you're saying. They're to, intrusive. To describe, they just kind of... You have this thought, yeah, this what, fantasy. Oh, my God. I'm trying to think what the word is. There's like a gorgeous... French term for it. Oh, um, you're so good at giving us all the French terms. Oh, it's wonderful. You know what? I'll probably find it before we end. But it's also, it's basically a, uh, a French pronunciation of standing on the edge of oblivion. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of this, like, dealing with existential conflict of emotions internally. Right. And it's just the sort of, like, facing the darkness. And Except that a lot of people don't you have that sort of psychobabble uh, vocabulary to process it. Sure. They just know that, like, oh, God, that was a really weird thought, and I'm grossed out by it. Right. Or sitting with someone and going, what if I had sex with them? Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, right. oh, my God, why would I think that? Exactly. Just an so intrusive that, thought. That's good. That's a kind of a, a lead into really, like, sexual fantasy, too, because at the core of all this, people want to know, is this a fantasy world? Is this who you really are? Is this something you would never do, or are you planning? Again, it goes back to, is it an outlet, or is it the beginning of the next Ted Bundy? Exactly. And then if it if it isn't the beginning of the next Ted Bundy, then some people, I mean, a lot of people's reaction is like, well, what the hell is going on with you? Right. Like, what, you know, this is clearly more than an intrusive thought. You have taken this thought. It met some need and you have now fostered it right and you fostered an incredible fantasy life around that thought exactly exactly so he talks a bit about where he thinks that came from um, because just like a lot of people with paraphilias he really can pinpoint that it started to form around puberty when um, oh god what was it what did he, what was he watching? Ugh, again. And his parents I'll had already divorced by puberty. I think his right. parents divorced when he was three or four. Right. So very young. Um, and just looking at some of the parent interactions, you know, his, he describes his mom as being very nurturing and his dad being sort of the authoritarian. And there are a couple of times where, I mean, the parents are very vivid characters. Yeah. You know, and I'm not going to, I don't want to sound judgmental, but they're very, vivid characters, there are some things that his mom says that are like, they make you think. Mm -hmm. And I'm Mm -hmm. not saying that there was any abuse. It's just that there are some factors there that I do think contributed in a realistic way to. Sure, um, sure. So he, at 15, he said he saw the movie The Mask, remember with um, Cameron Diaz and and Jim Jim Carrey. Carrey. And there's a part where Cameron Diaz is kidnapped and tied up. And he remembers finding that very sexually arousing. Okay. So that that's a that's an interesting pinpoint of where this pairing of sex and violence could have been discovered. I don't want to say it was made. But yeah, I was going to say discovered. that. Yeah, that's an important point to make. That that's where you know, if for him to be aroused, it means that the foundation was laid before, and here's here's an actual 
physical representation of what's been sort of roiling around in my psyche. Yes, yes. So he ends up getting charged with one count of conspiracy to commit kidnapping. So just a quick refresher, conspiracy is planning with at least one other person to commit a crime, and then you have to take one overt act towards that. And he was also charged with one crime of unlawful use of a law enforcement database. So as somebody who has access to a law enforcement database that has personal information about lots of people in this world, you are not allowed to use that for personal use. <laughs> it is for investigative purposes. It is for, you know, running a suspect to see what his criminal history is. You have to do training and take a test and swear up and down that you are not going to use this to look up where your ex-boyfriend currently lives. Absolutely. I mean, it's also, and beyond just direct, you might be looking... There might be somebody that's deceased, but you were like, oh, we got to look at the family members. We've got to find some kind of connection. Right. You know, it can be extended beyond just the, the, the initial point. But once again, you don't do it. You don't do it in hospitals. Right. The big case out here with Cedar sinai years ago was there was some idiot that looked into Britney Spears' uh, psychiatric hold. And there then you go. they, you know, were telling all their friends. And that was a huge Huge confidentiality breach. Yeah. It, it So in the law enforcement world, there's not confidentiality, but there are privacy rights. Yes. So it's, it's a little different in, and yeah, it's just, it would be outside of the scope of your duties, of your job, and you're trusted with this database or databases that are just, have tons of private information about people. So once his wife ended up calling the police about what she found of course, his job is going to start their own internal investigation as well. Um, but come to find out, he did end up looking up addresses, home addresses of some of the people that he was talking about kidnapping, who were ranged from, like I said, mutual friends of him and his wife to women he had gone to college with and known personally um, to people that he was like in common Facebook groups with, like from his his high school, so an alumni group. And there was a younger girl on there who he kind of became fixated on and had as one of the people in his plan. So that's how why he was end up ended up charged with um, the unlawful use of the law enforcement database, which is a really serious thing. People get fired for that oh, all the time. Constantly. All constantly. The time. And they should. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so these were federal charges. Um, I just want to, probably because of the internet issue, because who has jurisdiction over the internet? We've decided basically the feds do, um, especially when this occurred. And then um, it was like 2013. And then because he's a police officer as well, usually that's handled in federal court. So I think... The real big piece of this, not only the ick factor that cannibalism elicits in people, um, but and the thought crimes piece, which is just kind of was blowing people's minds at that time. But the fact that he was a police officer really was kind of the icing on top of all of that. Like, so author Bob Kolker said, it was the best true crime has to offer because you have all of these again, really juicy factors to it. And again, who do we have on a pedestal say that they have to act 
morally superior are the people that we hold in authority positions, such as law enforcement. So I think that was really disturbing to people. They thought, here he is with all this power and authority, and what if he is stalking women or can easily um, manipulate or abuse his power in that way to, you know, we know that there have been cops that do that to sexually victimize women as well. Um, And even Park Dietz talks about this in his studies and his, you know, Park Dietz is another big name in forensic psychology, forensic psychiatry. Um, But he talks about that law enforcement is one of the fields that certain personalities are drawn to for that purpose, to take the role of either they have a hero complex or if they have predatory tendencies, then there's always an excuse to be looking at people. Sure. Absolutely. And the first thing we do when a cop does something just egregious like this is we always want to go back to their pre-employment because they get screened, right? Police officers get psychological screenings and we always want to go back and say like, oh, what did we miss? (laughs) Or what was there that we didn't pay attention to and decide to hire him anyway? And Which is such a... You know, I I don't know how fruitful that is because you can conjecture nonstop about looking. If you looked at a cop, you know, a cop messes up and you go and you look at their thing And then it's basically just sort of we're all pissing in the wind, figuring something out. Because you and I have talked about this, about, like, the guy that got referred to me for a consultation, not a client, so I'm not broaching any confidentiality, but a guy that was a former actor that wanted to become a cop, and they... He could not pass the psych exam. He passed everything with flying colors, except he had not been in a long-term relationship. And because that's a big marker for law enforcement. Yeah, stability. Or what they think that that represents. I think that's a little bit, I don't know what kind of Mm ist-ism that is, but it feels classist or something. It does. Um, It does. Because, I mean... I think he, my conversations with him was he was a pretty amazing guy with an amazing life and was ready to transition into something else. But you're saying because he wasn't ever married or he didn't have a relationship beyond a couple of years? Yeah. But as a a therapist, Uh I I don't know. Anyway, that was an example that uh, along the lines of what you're talking about. Yeah. What is an MMPI going to tell you about some guy who has a fantasy? you know, seven years down the line about cannibalism. Right. You're just, you're not going to capture that information. It's it's a rule out for psychopathology, definitely, but not everything is on an MP, MMPI. Not, so. Exactly, exactly. And, and he's never going to divulge that in a clinical interview, so. Right. <laughs> you're just painting with a broad brush. And actually, and this guy kind of told on himself and like, no, this, anyway. Yeah. So in going to, I mean, we circled around this and we talked about some of the issues. I'm sure most of the people who are listening to this are familiar with this case. But what Goberto did was he made elaborate, elaborate plans in these sexual or in these fantasies. I won't call them sexual fantasies. In these cannibalistic, violent, homicidal themes. Themes. And it was it was they're brutal themes. I mean, and reading some of the transcripts, basically over and over again, they were elaborate plans for the kidnap, torture, rape, evisceration, exsanguination, cooking, and eating 
of women. So exsanguination meaning draining of blood, you right. know, dismemberment, everything. And he, the plans were incredibly elaborate, like down to we have to buy this kind of car with this kind of plate, this kind of rope, this kind of duct tape. I've got, I think he said he had a house upstate. Right, like, like a cabin somewhere. That was three quarter, and it was very distinct, like three quarters of a mile away from which is about what you need in a forest, you know, in a secluded area buffered by trees that sure. will dampen sound. So he had done some research even right. there that there was a basement with a human, with an oven that was big enough and a ceiling that was high enough to string the victim up. None of which was true. None of that existed. None of it existed. He never purchased a single object. Right. So this takes us back to, I mean, there are so many themes that this brings up. And the attorneys that they uh, interview for the the documentary are so great, um, especially the DA. I mean, the DA is really fascinating because he, his name is um, uh, Joseph DeMarco, and he very explicitly states, we do not have thought crime in this country. Um, it is permissible to have all of the thoughts he had. What is impermissible is planning with another person to execute those thoughts. And then he talks about, I mean, it's not like he's saying it's his opinion, but he's talking about the rule of law that he said, and I love the way he frames this and why I could never be an attorney. But he <laughs> says, it is possible for a person, how does he frame it? Um, a person could say that he could go all the way to the front door of his victim's home with all the intention but walk away and he's in innocent. Right. I mean, it really is like sort of like that's what the the legal system is based on is about sure. intent, action taken. So the cons- that's why attempted charges are so hard to prove and so messy. We didn't even have those for a long time. No, right. So, you know, attempted murder and all of that, those, those are tough to prosecute. Right. I mean, and it brings up, I mean, certainly. Uh, they use what so I think is great about the documentary is they use some public domain images from a version, a film version of the uh, book 1984, and they use some clips from Fahrenheit 451, the first one, which are sort of dystopian futures where thoughts are controlled. What they didn't use, which I thought was very would have been very interesting, is. Um, the Minority Report, yeah. you know, which is sort of, is they had a pre-crime division where right. they're predicting using a psychic to tell what these people are going to do. But even in those cases, the psychic was predicting it, but the person had not done it. Right. You know, it's it's a very interesting situation. It really is. Situation. It really is. Um, so I wanted to say a little bit more about when they brought Park Dietz in as the forensic psychiatrist in his in uh, Valley's trial. So, yeah, Park Dietz, if you haven't, you know, heard that name before, a very prolific forensic psychiatrist um, until he wasn't for a moment when he gave some false testimony in the Andrea Yates trial. Wah, but, wah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but essentially, they hired him in order to assess the central question of how real was Valley's persona and what does that mean for future dangerousness? 
we are not really great at predicting future behavior <laughs> with criminals. I mean, we um, have all people. these right. We have threat assessment rubrics. Yes, and and we use them, but they're not mathematical equations. We can say that this person that meets this criteria most likely will be at risk of taking advantage of the possibility right, that totally, may exist, totally. you know, constantly putting kind of modifiers, yeah. right? Yeah, it, it is. It's an assessment. It's not a prediction. Um, but he did like 18 hours of clinical interview with Valley. Um, he did go back and look at his pre-employment stuff from the police department, found nothing of interest. Um but I like this quote where he says, to become a sex criminal acting on your paraphilia, you need more than just your paraphilia. So even if we were to look through this, and obviously the lens of, of sexual paraphilias, it's still your thoughts. It could be your fantasies, your thoughts, your sexual interest, but it doesn't mean it's going to leave your brain. True. And there's another aspect of it, too, that pertains to how you and I first met and, and worked when we, you know, working with collectors of child pornography. One of the things that was, and you, you were already, you were already up on this concept, but I remember when Leah was explaining to us the idea, which I get now, and it took me a while to get, was the idea that the collectors of the child pornography were still victimizing. Mm those individuals, even though those photos of the Cindy collection might be right. 25 years totally. old, you're still reenacting the victimization of this individual, even though she may not know that it's right. still happening, right. right? So there's a parallel to this in that he victimized, maybe there were, I mean, there weren't nude photos of these these women that were on the list. But that is a form of victimization, and he shared their photos. Right. That's such a good point, because with that, if you ask them, I bet you they feel like oh, God. a rape victim. I would. But yes, absolutely. I think the, the way they feel is the way they feel, and who are we to say that you aren't a victim right. in a way, because the, the it can very much parallel somebody who was violently. Right. Remember, sure. like, even on, on a much lighter scale, remember, like, the, there was, I don't know if it was an app or it was a site, it was, like, hot or not, and you could submit your picture. Right. But you voluntarily submitted your right, picture. Right, your own picture. And then there were other sites where you didn't submit, and it's like, and people sure. found out they were being raided in this horrible way. And, oh, yeah. you know, very sexually objectifying. Right. And, you know, a lot of women and men felt objectified by that process, which right. is completely understandable. Now, let's take it up exponentially a thousand percent. Yeah, they're not just rating your looks. No. Talking about... They're planning on... They're talking about how plump your forearms are so they can roast them. Yes. Yuck. Yes. So he ends up being found guilty and facing life in prison. And he spends 21 months in custody before a judge throws out the conviction and ends up acquitting him of the conspiracy charge. Um, so a lot of the documentary is really interesting because it's him out and seeing if the prosecution is going to refile. And so he's kind of back in this pretrial process where he has the ankle monitor and he has to be on home confinement with his mom. Um, 
and basically is not able to leave the house <laughs> and how he's sort of complaining about some of those issues <laughs> rather than I'm grateful I'm not in prison right now. Yeah, that's I'm going to I'm going to rant on that. Yeah, please. But um, but that's where a lot of the headlines came out like son enjoys home cooked meal by mom and then oh, I it was like, it was a lot more rude than it that. Was. It was like finally getting his fill of mom, oh, you know, it's just like really gross. Every pun about yeah. eating or cannibalism and then the documentary, it's like every two minutes they're showing them cooking. Well, see, that's the that's the bias that I felt was going on is like, I mean, I, you like know, the, bacon, the, the talking you know. heads are great. You know, they have some really smart talking heads. And look, I'll give I'll give him certainly a lot of credit for when the, the camera's first on him and he picks up a fork. He goes, oh, I hope nobody gets worried because I got a fork in my hand. Okay, that's kind of funny. Right. Right. But then as it goes on, right. It's funny to me. But then as it goes on, there are some other things. And I want to be completely aware of that or I want to completely disclose that I, in watching the documentary, as good as it is, I felt manipulated. And Mm -hmm. I'll talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how I felt manipulated and why I want to be careful about making any kind of judgments or commentary on certain aspects of this because of that. Yeah. But um, why don't we talk about how we feel about that judge's action after we come back from a break? Okay, sounds good. Cool. Okay, so we're back, and we were talking about the judge. um, Overturning the conviction and acquitting him on the conspiracy charge. You know, I, I think it comes down to sometimes there's not enough information to know what someone is capable of, and that doesn't sit well with the general public. Of course not. And the jurors that they interview were horrified. Yeah. You know, and I love that they interviewed. I do too. And I I think it was really valuable. And, you know, even the jurors said that they understood why, but it was still disturbing that it had been overturned. And Look, you know, I started out by saying that this, when we started this episode about how that it really kind of picks at me in some right. ways. It, and it doesn't, like you were talking about, you were eating your dinner or eating your lunch. It doesn't bother me in a gastric, nauseous way. It bothers me in like a, in a, um, it it bothers me. It sets off my sort of radar for uh personality pathology. Okay. That's the part I think that really bugs me because... And well, you is, have a good radar because that's what the research shows. Okay. <laughs> that we'll talk about, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. I mean, that, but that is really why it bugs me. I mean, there are things that... We will talk about in this. We're going to get, you know, we'll, we'll we'll take a right turn in a second about this. But with him, and once again, I always want to be careful about who is editing the documentary I'm watching because the editor creates the narrative in collaboration with the director, right? Right. And it's it's their version of what was presented then they're picking and choosing and it may be very very accurate but some of the things that i notice just in watching and i'm commenting on behaviors i'm not diagnosing anyone that's alive i'm saying that i saw a lot of very egocentric statements made there was 
if it was touched on how his actions impacted other people, it was touched on briefly and then it was scooted away from yep. very quickly. Yep. I thought it was really interesting because he lived with his dad until he met his wife. But then mom is the one who kind of swoops in and he's living with her and taking care of him post all of this. Right. I think you know she, what I, I, so I wonder what the dynamic trying, was Yeah, there. she's trying to figure something out. I mean what what's very clear is dad is like, yeah, I don't want to talk about anything. Sure. And to me that just speaks volumes or just opens up a, a uh, an incredible line of questioning that I would have if I was working on this. Right. And and I think we got probably an idea of how a lot of family members of people accused of sexual crimes had a difficult time dealing with what their loved one was accused of. And I worked directly with parents of, you know, offenders. And denial is a great place to be. <laughs> And I want uh, yes, denial is and it, it can be a For tool. A while. But let's let me let me put a pin in what you just said. Crimes. Yeah. He didn't do anything. True. So it's more about well, and so you know what I mean. It's like it, it makes it even more complex. It is I think. because when I have worked with family members, a lot of what they're going through there there's there is a healthy amount of denial at some point, but then. The thoughts of, has my child always been like this? Is my husband a monster? What is he capable of? Or as most mothers do, what did I do wrong? Absolutely. You know, how, what did I do wrong? You know, and, and that's what our society also does is we always want to blame the mothers yes. for something that happened in development times right. when it's just so many factors. Right. But, you know, it's kind of circling back around to, you know, he just had this sort of laissez-faire attitude about the depth of how his actions affected other people. The victims, the women that he wrote about, his his ex-wife, you know, impacting his family. It just didn't really seem to sink in. Right. And what's he done now? Do you want to talk about that? So he is now a horror fiction novelist. Not going to read any of his books, not going to download them to look at an excerpt, but he is channeling that creative outlet. Yeah, and he's getting, he, I mean, I, there's, it's a, the book that's on Amazon that I looked up, the storyline involves law enforcement. <laughs> it involves law enforcement. It involves uh, dirty cops. Uh, it, it involves like sort of sex slave cannibal torture rings and has tons of explicit scenes, much like he was writing when he was on the fetish boards. And in fact, some of the like, it's interesting, there's no middle ground in the reviews, either it's five star reviews or it's one star. Like people are just like, this is just forget it. I like horror, but this is gross. And I know then, some podcasts like that too. Exactly. Very divisive. Yeah. But not there, us, not us. Not us. <laughs> but there was one thing that I thought was very interesting was somebody had written, like, look, if you're not into splatterpunk, mm -hmm. then this is not your genre. 
And, you know, and I, I get that. I remember when Clive Barker's Books of Blood came out, like in the maybe the early 90s. He's a right. horror writer. Some of his stuff, which led to, um, what was the series of, oh, Hellraiser, the Hellraiser movies. Those are really pushing the limits for, and it was the beginning of sort of torture porn in a way. Right. But mild compared to Saw and Hostel and some of the the movies that are out there now. for the time. Yeah, but for the time it was very, very controversial. So that that begs the question, what's the difference between him sitting in his bedroom typing this on a computer and now he's publishing it, people are consuming it, (laughs) no pun intended, Um, (laughs) and paying for it and it's accepted. It's an art form now because it's a book, just like a movie, torture porn films that are mainstream that aren't porn, but you know we call it that, um, like a saw or hostel or something like that. What? Uh, it, it, this is There's a, real, a creep factor because he's sitting it's, it's, in a dark room it's, by himself. It's creep right? and it's an ick factor. I mean, you think about how does that affect the women that were victimized by this, you know, that he is now, or, you know, a somewhat renowned author and he's speaking at a convention and that there are people glorifying him. I mean, it's, this is weird. It's kind of meta because we're in this world too, right? So this is a really meta conversation to have, but I remember, you know, several years ago, my friend, Marin Maisie, who is, who passed away a couple of years ago, she was a big Broadway star and they did a musical version of bullets over Broadway. Mm-hmm. That is a great Woody Allen film. Like it's a great Woody Allen film. And they did a really great musical version of the film. And it was poised to be a big hit, but all the scandal broke. Gotcha. Like even more scandal came forward from Mia Farrow, his ex-wife, and this is way beyond Soon Yi. And man, they shut that show down immediately. Like it was gone. Like the theater community was like, "No, nah, we don't do that." Hmm. So there's a version of yeah. someone who has supposedly engaged in these actions, and his art form is shut down, or they don't take a chance on it. Versus this. Yes, uh, but the art form in this case, in and of itself, is the problematic issue as well as the person. Exactly. Whereas so in this, it was just the person. Yeah. Yeah. Had yeah. nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 just all, and I think that's why, you know, having him. He so uh, Valley was a, a speaker at CrimeCon last year in 2019, and from what I hear, you know, we weren't there, but it was very divisive in the sense that some people didn't want to step in the room with him, yet fascinating topic to talk talk about thought crimes and use this as a case presentation to bring this out in the open. So, of course, there were appeals in his case, but the federal appeals court upheld the overturning of his conviction. They said, quote, we didn't want to give the government the power to punish us for our thoughts and not our actions. I get it. I completely, yeah. I completely get it on that level, and I think that's probably. I mean, this is what we call a, a dialectic: is sitting in distress tolerance of a really difficult situation where you respect, like, this is what the legal system says, and this is what defines our freedoms, right? Versus something that is really 
uncomfortable and gross and has an ick factor. Mm-hmm. And there was a in the documentary, there's a, a British journalist who's a contributor for The Guardian. Her name is Laurie Penny. And she said something I think that was really, really succinct and profound. And I really like it. So I'm going to quote her here. What makes someone an ethical human being isn't what they think, but what they choose to do with their thoughts. No action on those thoughts or displacement. It's in the gap between thought and action is where people discover what kind of people they are. Absolutely. And I just think that kind of nails all oh, of yeah. it, right? Yes, that's my style of therapy right there. Yeah. Cognitive behavioral and keeping people from engaging in problematic behaviors. Yeah. It all starts with your thoughts and your emotions and feeds each other. So. Yeah. Another pun. Sorry. Uh I need to stop. But there's a lot of this in popular culture as well that has been fascinating. I mean, one of the the big sort of slasher movies from my youth was The Hills Have Eyes, which is about mutant nuclear mutated cannibals in the Southwest. It's a really great, suspenseful, and even funny movie. There's some things in it that are really (laughs) funny. Um, And cannibalism has been, you know, in several different uh, big-time movies. There's a lot of books about it. There's What's interesting to me is how many French films there are. Yeah, what's up with that? Well... It's a cuisine country, right? Okay. I mean, I don't hear a lot of Italians talking about it, but right. But in the French, and also what's very interesting, fava beans from <laughs> um, France. Very you know, of course, we can't get away from from this without mentioning, you know, Hannibal the Cannibal, the Doctor Lecter. Sure. Um, but the um, one of the things that I find really interesting is that how the ideas of cannibalism permeate so much of our culture and our religion, whether or not we're aware of it, that Christianity has this sort of, I mean, if you're a Catholic, then you believe in the concept of transubstantiation, which is the conversion of wine and bread into flesh and blood of Christ. And you imbibe that and thereby take in the Holy Spirit and become clean again. So that's working on some way, way pre-Christian ideas and mythology, which you had brought up, like there's, you were going to talk about the the Greek mythology. So the the first that I could find of mentioning anything about cannibalism, um, also referred as anthropophagy, which is eating of the victim's flesh or slicing off parts of the flesh from the body to consume, um, would be by the Greek writer Herodotus, who wrote the histories. So it's kind of the first written History, rather than anything that was told um, beyond just kind of bullet points or um, spoken to people to carry on. So he talked about tribes in an area that is now like eastern Iran who wore scalps of men on their chests. And this is like 440 BC. Um, who they talked about as cannibals. And Shakespeare then wrote about them, and he kind of goes off of that same, the writings from Greek mythology, and says that in Othello, he said, and of the cannibals that eat each other, the anthropophagy and men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders. So meaning, you know, how they had the scalps um, on their chests and they would wear those. But... 
cannibalism was practiced in prehistoric human tribes and all the way up into the 19th century. More like areas like Fiji, I think, were kind of the some last remaining where right. it was part of the culture and not due to famine right. or so, and that's necessity. The, that seems like the two like branches. Like the Donner like, Party. <laughs> right, the Donner Party or so, or even the, the Uruguay, Uruguay flight. And, yeah. But those was, that's the vast majority of examples of cannibalism have been either due to just survival instinct yes. as opposed to ritual ritualized cannibalism that um, is necessary for propagation of cultural memes and cultural um, rituals. Right. Where, and that is usually based on either Either there are two versions. One is either to honor the ancestors and take in their benevolence or mm-hmm. the beneficence, or to eat your enemies. Right, at, a sign after war, of it's victory. a sign of dominance. Right, right? which really links back to kind of the granddaddy of all of it in Greek mythology where Kronos, the Titan, is eating all of his children because he knows that his oh, children, right. Zeus and all the others, are going to become so powerful that they're going to overthrow him. So he's just eating all of his children and right. eventually, you know, he gets conquered and they're all still wandering around in his stomach. They're able to get out and do wow. their own thing. <laughs> so... So I think, you know, we, we understand that and we kind of see the, the primitive piece of cannibalism. We see the necessity in times of just surviving or famine. But then we have people who have actually engaged in this behavior and where have we... Have gone beyond fantasy. They've actually acted on it. Right. right. So diving into the the more contemporary true crime piece to all of this. Um, so I think it's worth mentioning Armin Maiwes, the German cannibal. I think it's Muse. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> um, God. Okay. Um, so this is in 2001. Um, so if, if you'll recall, this is a man who basically solicited online for a victim, a fully willing partner who he could kill and eat. And somebody answered his ad and said, which is backed up by internet postings and emails, that he was a fully willing partner. Um, So these men met in person together before the victim was killed. His testicles were removed, and they ate them, cooked and ate them together. Um, And then Armin stabbed this man to death and then ended up cooking the rest of his body, eating most of it. Um, He talked about it not being sexual in nature and that he wanted someone to become a part of him and that he had had fantasies of cannibalism as young as the age of eight. Wow. So, Which is very akin to Jeffrey Dahmer not wanting his victims to leave. You know, wanting, right. so we're talking about if we were going to go psychodynamic, like really, you know, integrating good breast, best, good breast, bad breast, yeah. um, sort of pre-individuation. Right. And maybe like, you know, just maybe this is a reflection on a sense of emptiness and a sense of not being a part mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a complete, like a real twist on 
uh, a desire for intimacy. So right. it's just that desire for intimacy is really going down the wrong neural pathway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it, so. Dahmer made some sort of similar comment of right. wanting this person of the victim who he ate the biceps of that he wanted him to be a part of him. So, um, you know, there's several other very prolific serial killers that have engaged in some sort of cannibalism. We have, well, Ed Kemper. So he he talked about some cannibalism. He then, at a parole hearing in 1988, said that he falsely confessed to some of those more elaborate things like um, sexually victimizing the bodies of his victims after death and cannibalism. He retracted that at some point. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but again, it's a parole hearing. You're trying to, like, get in the good graces. Oh, that's so true. That's true. I'll take that with a grain of salt. But um, Albert Fish, Ed Gein, um, Ed Gein, he's another one that, you know, there's this this um, this theme of, like, even with Valley, of the hunt and then sort of treating them as... Uh, game, right? He's stringing them up, well, and, bleeding them out, yeah. um, as you would a deer. And Ed Gein had something like that, you know, happen. And, and they found the one woman that actually went missing and led to his capture. They found her decapita- decapitated body in a shed on his property, hung upside down by her legs with a you know, crossbar at her ankles, ropes at her wrists, and her torso was dressed out like a deer. Yeah. Um, and she had been shot with a twenty two caliber rifle, so there's this feeling of, you know, him hunting her, literally hunting her. Um, but that was a lot of the themes in Valley's type of writings as well. Yeah. This treating them like big game animals. And also describing them in the terms of of big game animals that you're going to consume. Talking about sort of certain, especially with his wife, talking about like the size of her legs and the size of her arms and there's a lot of right. meat on this part. So really, really objectifying. I mean, we talk about sexual objectification and this is almost like sort of a corporophagic, not corporophagic, but Anthropophagic mm-hmm. objectification. I'm going to write a paper on that. You should. No, I don't In want to. In all of your free time. <laughs> I don't want to write about that. I just don't. Um, and then I also want to talk about a case that just happened over Christmas this last year, and this was in Michigan. So uh, Mark Latunsky, he is facing murder charges for allegedly killing and cannibalizing a 25-year-old man that he met on Grinder on Christmas Eve. And this victim was spending time with his family. He was a um, hairdresser. His parents seemed very lovely, and they couldn't speak higher of him. I mean, just talked about how he really cared for his clients and just had such a great Mm. social circle and just seemed like a really neat young man. And he was hanging out with some friends on Christmas Eve and um, decided to go meet a man that he found on Grindr. And he did not show up for Christmas breakfast the next morning at his parents' house. So immediately his friends and family reported him missing. And the police found his car and his cell phone was in his car. All of his belongings were in his car. But the cell phone let him... You know, the app right to the man's house that he went to, um, this Latunsky, 
and the police knock on the door, and he almost immediately confesses and takes them down to the secret dungeon room where this young man's body was, and it was um, strung up as well. He confessed to slicing off this young man's testicles and cooking them and eating them. What is it with the testicles? Like, is that like the ultimate source of life, you know, for, life so or I don't, consuming and I having remember, someone be a part of you? I, remember, I don't know. I mean, I remember being, in all seriousness, like I'm not trying to be funny or anything. I mean, I do, do know that it's considered a delicacy in many cultures, not human testicles, but like right, right, right. even when I was working in Taiwan years ago, like when we were taken out by, you know, sort of patrons of our show, they would like one of the, hmm. this, this uh, rooster testicle Right. Stew was like supposed to be a delicacy. And I mean, I was, I, I don't know if I'd be adventurous enough to eat it now. It wasn't then. I was faking it, but <laughs> throwing but it over your shoulder. But isn't it interesting that the, like, that's the point. I mean, it's also like Maybe. the most, you know, it's, it's male genitalia. It's on the outside of the body. It's the most nerve endings, you know, the most right. nerve responsive. So it's also like, does it represent life and power? Does it represent domination? I'm going to take the thing that's, I that's don't your know. weakness. Like and, a castration yeah. sort of symbolism to that. I don't know. Um, but since this man's arrest, several other men have come forward and said, we had some really scary interactions with him. We escaped his home. One guy talked about him. Um, he was wrapped in saran wrap, and then this guy started marking off portions of his body like you would with an animal of the shank and the you know different portions of meat. And he was able to the convince haunch. him. Yeah, he was able to convince him to let him go. Um, so this man is estranged from a current husband. The suspect also has an ex-wife with whom he has four children. He worked as a chemist, but there is a lot of court records, um, especially with the custody issues with the children that talk about his extensive uh, mental health history. So he has, uh, there are diagnoses listed from recurrent and chronic major depression with psychotic features, adjustment disorders with depression, and anxiety, paranoid schizophrenia, borderline personality traits, like a ton of stuff. And those are, I mean, every one of those, I mean, especially is, is all leading back to what I'm going to talk about in a second is like is psychosis because that's a very common factor in in the very few scientific studies that exist about cannibalism that has been a common factor. Yeah. Yeah. So what ha- can you imagine those cops like oh on Christmas my day? God, you have probably like a complete skeleton crew, you know, just And here's these here's a guy that he's confessing and how many times I mean, look, I've been I've been on calls with law enforcement where you get told that you're going to walk into something that's horrible and you walk in and it's actually, you know, it's right. not because the person is either delusional or it's not what you think it is. And sometimes it's bad. Sure. But I'm just trying to place myself in the head of those cops and not knowing what to expect and being told, oh, okay, I did it. How many times do cops hear false confessions? They hear it a lot like, right. from from and, mentally ill people. And the cops have been to this guy's house a ton of times for oh, different really? things. So you, it, they said like 12 times, 10 times in the last, well, 
like once a year. But if he's lived in the same place, the same police department probably what, knows. Do you know what they're for? What the calls totally, are for? Totally. There's been um, a lot of it was child custody stuff. Okay. Um, he had been accused of kidnapping his own kids. I think it was more like a failure to return them. Right. Um, there were like some suspicious circumstances calls of like weird people wandering around. Well, maybe they're escaping the dungeon. <laughs> I don't know. Or yeah, I mean. But but what I was gonna say is, you know, this could be like that kind of local weird guy that the cops kind of know of. Yeah. And oh yeah, let me take you down to the basement and show you what's down there. And, you know, the flip side of of this situation like this, I remember in my private practice many years ago, there was a guy who, this was at the beginning of apps and people meeting and apps. And he, he said like, there's a guy, there's a really hot guy, you know, over on the other side of town that I've been having this really hot talk with. And, and I'm, but I'm kind of not sure what to do. And so I don't, I have no idea where this is going to go. So he starts describing it. And basically it was a rape fantasy, uh-huh. but the, person on the other end, the male on the other end, supposed or supposedly male on the other end of the app was saying was explaining to him that he had a rape fantasy and he wanted this person to he wanted the, my client to come over at night, mm-hmm. climb in through the bedroom window and make it as real as possible. Right. And they had been talking about it for weeks and my client was, you know, there are a lot of times, look, as a therapist, you go, well, how do you feel about that? Well, what do you think that, what could, what are the consequences? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the times where I went, no, you're not going to do that <laughs> yeah. because even if it's real, even if it's real, like it's that it's just going to be a fantasy and it's going to be a sexual encounter, sure. that's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous all the way around. Right. Like there are legal ramifications for you. Sure, you know, a neighbor that, sees you sneaking in the window. And, uh, absolutely. I mean that, like, and this was long before everybody was having the conversations about consent. Sure. But like beyond consent, let's just talk about not being. Don't dumb, put yourself in a risky you know. situation and always screenshot your messages. <laughs> yeah. You sound like you're pretty experienced. Always screenshot your messages. Um, Turn on your location so people know where you are. That I just, poor family. I, I feel so badly for that victim's family and for I, him. I wanted to add it, the victim's name is Kevin Bacon and the actor Kevin Bacon immediately sent out his condolences and then was able to help the family financially with funeral services, which I thought was so Which is like funny and weird and sweet and sad all at the same time, you know, but very kind. He has a great reputation. He's supposed to be really great. Um, You're going to talk about psychosis. Yeah. I mean, this is really, you know, like I say many times is there are so many areas of psychology that, even you just subdivide it and subdivide it and subdivide it and you go in and you don't realize that there's just so much to pull from and that there's actually been research, you know, maybe not a ton of research, but somebody has actually made an effort. And I wanted to talk about some of the terms that we use and then the study that we found. One of them is erotophonophilia, phonophilia, and that's a sexual paraphilia where the individuals have extreme violent fantasies and they go on to typically kill their victims and mutilate the victims, particularly the sexual organs. So it has a name. Um, we call mm-hmm. them, it's basically lust murderers. And right. the theory is that Jack the Ripper, most likely, if it was one person, that Jack the Ripper fits the profile for that. 
And then others are some of the, you know, you talk about Ed Gein, Jeffrey Dahmer, Albert Fish, Issei Sagawa, and Andre Chikadalo, uh are all people that have engaged in lust murders and eaten their victims. There's also um, another one called Vorarophilia, and that's another, this is definitely a sexual paraphilia, where individuals are either aroused by the idea of being eaten, eating another person, and or observing it happen to someone else, but only for the purposes of sexual gratification. So most of the time, this is just a fantasy. Right. But then Arwen, Muse, is the one who carried through and actually made made it made it happen. Right. Um, there's another one that's and not. And I would say his victim had the fantasy of being consumed. So both of them were vororophilic. They found each other. Yeah, which is. I mean, uh, and I think he had a number of responses. He did. I mean, I remember reading when that case first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading about it, and I was so surprised because there were one of the things that was very clear is there were a lot of people that were interested, and when they found out he was for real, they were like, "Oh no, no, oh, no, no! Yeah. This was all fantasy. fantasy right. I'm not." And then there were others that would talk about it, talk about it, and then not follow through. And then there were a couple that I think there was one that backed out. Mm, you know, have made a commitment, but so right. all different on that spectrum. You know, what's so interesting is um, in an article that I pulled about Gil Valley speaking at CrimeCon is that he ran into a woman at CrimeCon that he had a conversation with, and she disclosed that she has sexual fantasies about being tortured to death. And so it's kind of this weird flip side to compliment his sort of in this way. I I think it was also another um, interesting misdirection on his part of like, well, there's other people who fantasize about this and bringing that up instead of which may which may be true, but that doesn't minimize no, you know what what his actions are. Right, right. but, but I want, let me. Let, yeah, the please, thing I want to say about the of... research that was very interesting is that they looked at, you know, a small sampling of cases. It was very small; it's only five. But these were all people who had cannibalistic fantasies or plans, and what they all had in common was the plans went back very early to, like you were saying, the age eight. of eight was when it was recognized, and this was um, common as as early as an age as that. Um, they were they could definitely tie a sense of humiliation as being part of the process being intensely humiliated and the fantasy offering some relief from the humiliation now the other common factor was um that they had psychosis of some point of some type like significant psychosis. So psychosis can happen on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And like you gave a a potential diagnosis for the case you gave was um, major depressive disorder. People can get so depressed that it flips a switch in their brain to where they become psychotic. Right. So when they're in their depressive episode, they can have hallucinations or be delusional. Have beliefs that feel very, that are absolutely realistic to them that are not true. You can experience psychosis as a result of a a very high, long, severe mania or Uh manic period. Uh So there's a lot of different roads that you can get to this um, psychosis. Right. But it was 
very interesting that this was all common. The other factors of these cases of uh, found in the cannibals was dysfunctional childhood with sexual abuse, violence at home, or emotional neglect. Mm. So they all fit a demographic aged 18 to 36 male. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're certainly not seeing female cannibals. I mean, the closest thing we see to female cannibals is when people are um, sanguifiliacs, which is like vampires, if they are really turned on by sort of... The bloodletting. The uh, bloodletting and blood, um, uh, blood consumption. Right. But that you know, is kind of going off. That's really going off into another. Yeah. And, and then it's never, that never really veers into taking someone's life where right. this one does. No. So um, I think a real psychodynamic way of looking at this is that schizo- the schizophrenia group performed cannibalism as an extreme reaction of self-defense to a threat of destruction. So at the base of all uh, human drives from a Freudian or a psychodynamic perspective is this fear of annihilation. Mm-hmm. So in a way, this was just a, they're theorizing that it's a very twisted way of pushing back against utter destruction by destroying something else. Interesting. Um, so that being said, not diagnosing anyone that we've talked about today, but it does seem that there were some real uh, narcissistic traits. I would agree with that. In the way that these people have been presented, certainly Arwen Muse. If you see him interviewed, if you read some of the things that he's written, the guy, even more even more than coming off as a psychopath, he comes off as a narcissist. Right. And this is somebody, I mean, he has been he adjudicated. kind of a Hannibal Lecter. Right, he is a Hannibal Lecter. Right. So trying to wrap it up on... A less bloody note. <laughs> a lighter note. I would actually say if if people are interested in more research and just really interesting points about sexual fantasy, a lot of people have watched it already, but Sex Explained that's on Netflix oh, right it's now. it's so good. The first episode is all about sexual fantasy. I think the rest of the episodes are fine. They're pretty basic, but... I think it was really well done. The research is spot on. Um, When, you know, just the interesting things when you talk about rating men and women and what their top 10 fantasies are, both have some sort of forced, non consensual fantasy that always makes the top 10 for men and women. Um, So please check out that episode. It's it's really informative and well done. Yeah, and I, I, I really. And we talk about this a lot in, you know, when you're doing, uh, when you're doing sex work with, not sex work, but when you're doing, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> when you're doing sex therapy is talking about those roles of uh, dominance and submission. And mm-hmm. this is certainly plays into that. But aside from this particular, um, I want to take it back to the legal aspect and I want to tie in another example from entertainment that I find really really, really um, integral to this discussion. And it's an episode of The Twilight Zone from the 60s. It's a really sweet Twilight Zone. In fact, it's probably one of the sweetest ones you can watch, and it's called A Penny for Your Thoughts. Okay. So Dick York, who was the original Darren on Bewitched, is this sort of hapless guy that works in a bank. And just by a twist in the time-space continuum, as he's going to work, he flips a quarter 
for a nickel into the newsstand to pick up his paper. And it spins and it stops on its edge. And the newspaper guy goes, that's never happened before. He's like, wow, that's really weird. But from that moment on, that sort of twist in reality, this guy, the main character, can now hear people's thoughts. So he goes into the bank. He realizes his boss thinks he's an idiot and a wet rag and uses him. He realizes that the woman that he's had a crush on for years actually has a crush on him. And he also hears a little old man who's been at the bank forever who's going to commit a huge robbery. That at the end of the day, he's going to go in and he's going to load up his bag with $100,000 and he's going to take off for the islands. And he hears the thought all day and he struggles with, do I let people know? Do I let people know? And one of the things that happens is... There's a sort of an A plot and a B plot, but what does happen is that he reports it, and they check the little old man's bag at the end of the day, and there's nothing in it but papers. And the little old man turns to him and he goes, I have that thought every day. It's what makes me happy that I could just leave here. I could fantasize about going away to my happy place. Wow. So I thought that that came up for me as I was watching the documentary, I mean, and certainly it doesn't have anything to do with cannibalism, but it's the idea of thought crimes. So if you could have that information, right? what's the intent? Is the intent, are they going to follow through with it? Or is it just escapism? Like this was this little man's fantasy. It was what right. kept him surviving a drudge of a job. Well, and it's, I think that's wonderful. That's, I've never seen that episode. And I think that's so, what a great tie-in. And I think it goes back to the juror that's interviewed because what if you are the person on that jury and you are and you let this person go and they do become the next prolific serial killer? And I, I can't imagine sitting in that spot. I would have to side with the letter of the law, but that would be something that's really heavy weighing on you. True. But don't forget, you in your work and in my work, we actually do that. I mean, I think from the outside looking at a juror having right. to make that decision, but in our own micro way, we're making those decisions oh, every day in the work that we do. And Whether especially you, when you were still working with pre and post release sure. offenders, sure, I mean, it's, assessing risk and wondering are they going to go create another child molestation victim? Um, now, when I do a suicide assessment. What are what am I seeing in front of me, and how are they going to act when they walk out this door? Are they yeah. going to harm themselves? Um, we are playing those guessing games. Right. Cool. Thanks for uh, checking in, folks. This has been a fun episode. I feel less nauseous than I did at the beginning. <laughs> now that we processed it, <laughs> don't make me cough. Everybody's right. coughing on the West Coast. Every I got over mine, so that's okay. We don't have to edit yours out. What else <laughs> do we have coming up? We have an interview coming up next week for our next episode, which is going to be super cool. Yeah, we're going to um, do, you know, we don't do interviews very often. We interview a guest like once a year. So, Although we've got we another one. We've got up. a couple lined up that are going to be do. super cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
I have some ideas of some really cool episodes, so Great. I want to get get some of this stuff out. Some stuff that's kind of been on the back burner for a while that I'm like, why haven't we done this? And you guys that are on our Facebook group, we are getting all your messages. We've just been swamped getting yeah. back from the holidays. Your ideas are so awesome, and your comments are so awesome. We love we all the interaction. all of the suggestions. Everything is saved. So uh, we appreciate you guys so much, and um, like Scott was saying, it's really cool to go back and just look at the analytics of where how far we've come in two and a half years and it's, it's crazy it just blows our mind um so we we were just constantly thinking of ways and exploring avenues of how to take this show to different platforms so we cannot wait to bring everyone along for that ride <laughs> and we got some great merch coming so Yes, Save up your that's pennies. like our thing this year that yeah. we want to We're We've actually got an idea. I'm not going to give it away, but we have an idea that we mentioned many, many moons, many ago. moons ago that's going to be the first time yeah. anybody in podcasts have done this. So For I think sure. we're going to be the progenitors of that. Nice. All right, everyone. Thanks for hanging in there with us with cannibalism today. And we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. We'll see you next Bye. time.